Hey, welcome to Urban Planning is Not Boring. I'm Sam. And I'm Nat. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Urban Planning is Not Boring. Today, we have a very exciting guest, and we are going to be talking about brief urbanism, which we will get into a little bit later on in the episode. But we want to welcome Rye Dickerson to the podcast. And uh, we are so excited to have you to chat about some of the work that you did for your thesis. And we would love to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your background and anything that you anything that you'd like to share. Yeah, uh, thank you guys for doing this. Um, uh, I was born in Long Island, New York, born on Long Island, New York, uh, raised in Richmond, Virginia for most of my life. Uh, I live in Providence, Rhode Island now, where I'm a city planner. Um, I, outside of like work though, I, I play a lot of rugby and volleyball, two very like contrasting sports. <laughs> and um, I watch a lot of movies as well. Um, I kind of grew up like always just thinking about the city. I grew up in like very low income area. So, you know, for me, I thought like this was like, for me, like if you were rich, you had like a bike, you know? And so like as an adult now and like thinking about the city, I'm always like, wow, like there's such different worlds that people live in. Um, and how can we, and as a, as a planner now, I try to take my, my lived experience um, and really think about those like most marginalized, I suppose. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. Um, and I think you, you know, you kind of alluded to this next question, but we always like to ask our guests um, how they came to find planning and kind of what was the like impetus for wanting to pursue a career in planning. And so do you mind sharing a little bit into that journey with us? Yeah. So um, in high school, I was like, I was like the like theater kid. And so like <laughs> I was always like like reared to go into theater and like be this musical theater person. Um and uh important is that like from my high school to my house, which I would walk home from like rehearsal or from a show, we have to like cross essentially a freeway and it's very dark. Um and so one night a star football player. Deshaun Lewis was fatally struck by a car. Um, and I think for like maybe a week after my friends and I stood outside of like where he was struck, like in the median with like signs demanding that we needed like light poles and like, you know, adequate like infrastructure. But at the time, you know, I was just like, this is not safe. It should be safe to walk from school to like residential area. Um, and so that always stuck with me, but and so I went on to, to undergrad and I was a sociology uh, major with a, a, a double major in theater and sociology. Um, and after my first year of undergrad, I did two national tours in theater and I realized I didn't want to like, that's not what I wanted to do. Um, so I got back to school, finished my sociology degree, um, had a couple like gap years where I did a lot of community service uh, in AmeriCorps. Um, and realized that I wanted to go into planning. And so I ended up getting my master's at Ball State University, uh, uh, master's in urban planning. Yeah, that's 
um that's very sad um to, to you know have to talk about but i want to thank you for opening up that um and sharing that with us um natalie i didn't know if you had something that you wanted to yeah um, i i think that you know hearing stories like this are always really really sad but they highlight such a significant problem and I think that it's, you know, we all, of course, think how ridiculous it is to demand something as basic as proper lighting or safe sidewalks, but it is such a prevalent need, especially in marginalized communities. And so I just really appreciate that that's something that you're really advocating for that you wanted to explore. And that kind of brings us into the next question, because you decided for your master's degree in urban planning that you were going to write your thesis on grief urbanism, and you titled it Grief Urbanism, Placemaking, Surrealism, and Freedom Inside Protest Camps. And so we're hoping that you could explain to our listeners kind of what grief urbanism is and how you came to find this unique concept as it relates to the field of planning. Yeah, so um, grief urbanism is is a concept that I I... I made up and I'm still making up and I'm still wrestling with even to this day. Um, but it it explores uh, it explores and gives names to the social, political, and placemaking efforts that happen inside of protest camps and how those efforts are a means to express the failures from the state, from the police, but also from the planning efforts of the city. Um, and in this paper, I looked at uh, Seattle Chaz Chop. George Floyd Plaza and Marcus David Peters Circle in Richmond, Virginia. I came to find this because in Marcus David Peters Circle, Richmond, Virginia, I was a very like active activist in that space. Um, just as like a person who uh, Marcus David Peters was a young man uh, who was uh, fatally killed by the police when he was having like a a mental health issue. And he, all he really needed was patience, uh, but instead he was met with force. Um, and so there was, a, there was an autonomous zone that was built around the Robert E. Lee Monument. And there's like famous pictures of the Robert E. Lee Monument now with all the graffiti. Um, and I was just there as a regular pro, as a regular protester. Uh, but then when I returned back to school, I kept thinking about that and how like I've been to a lot of protests in my life. And that just felt different. And looking at the media from Seattle Chess Chop and George Floyd Plaza, all these autonomous zones are popping up. They just like... It was something different. And I think what made it fascinating to me was, was that they existed as, as spaces of protest to you know demand justice for the murder of these people, but also to demand change for the living conditions of people as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. That's it's it's such an interesting topic and obviously so relevant particularly when you were writing this and so um I think it you know as you said it's something that you're still kind of mulling over and trying to define and and kind of explore further and I think that that's really amazing um but we would like you know I I wrote a thesis in undergrad so I'm familiar with the process that can be pretty grueling uh particularly and yes. <laughs> um you know doing, you know, original research and trying to come up with, you know, some sort of conclusion about what you're writing, but 
as you said, like, this is still something that you're kind of, you know, figuring out and, and creating as you go. And so we would love if you could talk a little bit about the process um, when it came to writing your thesis, and if you came across any significant challenges or insights when you were researching uh, and writing this report. Uh, yeah, so um, a lot of the difficulty, like, as you mentioned, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's new work, it's a new idea. And so in our, like, our pre-thesis writing course that we had to take in the fall semester, where we just outlined what we were working on, uh, it was very difficult on one end, because um, I, I had, I, <laughs> think about how I want to say this, but it's 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 fine. I don't necessarily care. I had very little support from the planning department, um, uh, and so because of that, especially that first semester of us just conceptualizing our our thesis and our creative projects, for me it was. A great, a big deal of difficulty. Um, you know, we would do our like monthly review or check-ins, and my professor would just be very confused. And that's seventy-five percent because he, he just he just didn't seem to care, but twenty-five percent because I was still conceptualizing and thinking. You know, um, and uh, I was looking for a back and forth, a conversation, a dialogue that would happen, and it, it just it would never happen with professors. Um, and it wasn't until uh, I met Jonathan Bell, who was my advisor, um, and a lot of planners know him for embedded planning. Uh, my other advisor, Olin Dotson, uh, he, he coined the fourth world theory, which looks at like economic stratification um, in the US and how poor, super poor neighborhoods next to super wealthy neighborhoods makes it seem as if we are in a fourth world. Um, and then uh, I was able to get into like Zoom calls with the people I was citing in my thesis. And th that is having those people in, in my corner and being like, yeah, I understand where you're going. Or I'm I'm able to be a springboard and bounce back and forth with you on these ideas and push back when push back against you made that experience a lot, lot easier. Um, and but also like some of the insight I really got is just like, helping me as a writer realize that like, it's okay to be like, yeah, this was a great idea, but like scratch all of this. Um, you know, I, I always see a TikTok of like the person, like they shut their computer and the captions like, when you find an article cool article that like contradicts everything you say, and it's like, and it's like, yeah, that like that's happened a good bit of time, but I helped me roll with the punches. And I think the biggest challenge was just like starting off having no support. And it really wasn't until the end of the second semester, I gave my final presentation where all my planning professors were like, oh my God, this you're onto something. This is big. This is X, Y, Z. If you want to take this into a journal, all this stuff. And I'm like, that's like, I mean, it's like, you're doing it at this point for yourself, right? Like, because when I, when I needed the help to write this, you were not there for me. Um, and so, yeah. And so I guess, Find people who will support you and and like really care enough to have those that be a springboard for you as you like write your thesis is the insight I think is best. I really appreciate you breaking it down like that. And I also think this kind of highlights another really amazing aspect that I really appreciate about urban planning is that 
you know, meeting with Jonathan Pacheco Bell and hearing about his concept and all of this kind of derives from your lived experience and, and somehow you can find its relation to urban planning again, because it's your interaction to the built environment. So it's, you know, kind of intertwined with your everyday life. And I really, I'm really happy that you chose to, to work on something that was very out of the box and a new concept and something that you could really, really try to find more information on because of how intriguing it was to you. And I think that I'm really sad that you didn't have that initial support, but it's really good to hear that people did appreciate the work that you put in after and, you know, after you were finally able to kind of complete your findings and, and get down to the bottom of things. I really, you know, it's, it's a sad way to start, but I, I'm really happy that, you know, it kind of, it went in the direction that it did. And I just think that's amazing. And I want to congratulate you also for, for getting through that. And um, before we move on, sorry, I just wanted to add that I think it's been both Natalie and my experience that there have been times in this program where we have not felt as supported as we could have by Mm -hmm. some faculty. And I do think that this is a bigger like experience than we might like think. Like, I think that it's pretty common in a lot of master's programs and I don't, I don't even think it's just planning, but I think like Natalie and I, I feel like have, like we wanted to start this, like just comparing it to like this podcast, like we wanted to start it and we kind of served as like the springboard of ideas of like, okay, like what do we call it? How, do, how are we, how is this going to look? So like, mm-hmm. it could be like friends, you know, family, other professors that you, you know, come across, like how you, you know, were, were introduced to us through Jonathan and now, now we're getting to have this conversation. And so I feel like it's really important just to like find those support networks, like yeah. Anywhere that you really can, because yeah. like, I don't know, I feel like it is very difficult when you're not feeling supported by faculty at, you know, in your own program. And I think that there are a lot of people out there who can serve as that. So I just wanted to put that out there because I definitely have felt like that in our program. And I know that yeah. Natalie has, because we've talked about it before. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like having like even just like like I said like having like Natalie to just kind of like talk through course it coursework with and like mm-hmm. outside of classwork and like going to events like it just is so important that like you find those networks and support yeah like, yeah totally I totally second that Sam and yeah Sam knows how we both have had very similar experiences um in terms of you know support or just trying to find an outlet to just receive some form of viable feedback instead of just kind of that like glazed over like uh you know I don't know figure it out for yourself and so I'm just again like it's a it's an experience I think in academia that is very prevalent and it needs to change but again it's so amazing to find folks that can latch onto your idea and really support you through it because I feel like finding those people and finding that support, like that's how you get to, you know, kind of finalizing your concepts. And I, I just, I'm so happy because 
Um, I haven't gotten through your entire thesis, but I have been reading it. And I just really appreciate all the work that went into it. I can tell that it's something that you're extremely passionate about. And so we do kind of want to ask about, you know, what was kind of, can you share some of the most important elements or kind of the key takeaways of your thesis that you believe people should be more more aware of when it comes to grief urbanism and this kind of new concept? Yeah, um, so there's a good bit. So at any point, just jump, cut me off to ask another question. Uh, but I think one of the first things is, uh, and this is like something that JP was very adamant on, was like, how am I defining this outside of tactical urbanism, outside of guerrilla urbanism? Um, and, uh, one of the biggest things for me, uh, in my observation was that first is that when we think about tactical urbanism in its contemporary state, as it is now, it is something that's been, uh, adopted by the state and the federal government. Um, you know, there, there's, there's federal funding for it. Um, and because of that, whatever, whatever it once was, and it's like anarchic behavior, uh, it's it's now it's now it's now not that, right? Now you can like apply for variances, pay for encroachment, or just like seek approval from your planning department. And to me, that's no longer tactical urban urbanism. That's just you being a planner. Um, and I think about like how in Providence, Rhode Island, there was once a man who was so fed up with like not having a bike lane, he bought like a lot of plungers and just made his own bike lane with plungers. And we still have like one of the plungers in our office. And I think that that is like an embodiment of like what it means to, what it means, out of, what, what grief urbanism is, is that, you know, the city has failed you, right? And he's has failed you in a way that it doesn't allow you to move safely. Um, and because of that, he went into his own, his own right and bought plungers and made his own kind of space um out of like but it was made out of the frustration of the city could have done this but they didn't mm-hmm. um and so i think that the first thing is that it it, se- it separates itself from tactical urbanism guerrilla urbanism because one these are very like very like white male dominated spaces and two that these these spaces uh these forms of urbanism are ones that are accepted by the city and seek approval from the city mm-hmm. and grief urbanism um when we look at these autonomous zones and these protest camps they they don't ever ask for approval you know they they they, they set up they took the space and they set up and they, and they made it how they wanted to um another thing is that um i think one of the like my biggest like realization came when I when I finalized this idea of the poetic triad, and I use poetic after um, Robin Robin D G Kelly. Uh, Robin D G Kelly's work, Black Radical Black Radical Freedom or Freedom Freedom Dreams, Black Radical Imagination, uh, really was the backbone for this thesis, um, because what we're seeing is like this this act of like people wanting to be free of all races inside of these protest camps. Um, but he he used he calls people who in, engage in this activity the poets. And so when I think about when I was writing about how these spaces have these three core elements of surrealism, placemaking, and political discourse, this poetic triad that I, I I've come to realize is how those three things work in tandem inside of the space, right? And so the first is a surrealism, right? It's it's people in their dreaming of, in this instance, um, dreaming of how do how do we respond to moments of distress without police? And then 
um, political discourse is them coming together as space, as people um, and talking about this. And Judith Butler says that when bodies appear, so do politics. And that's little P, right? Just you're going to have these conversations. And so they, and in this space, they've been dreaming about how to respond in distress. And so through the discourse in Seattle, we saw that they had developed their own system where if there was a, an act of violence or distress, they would respond first inside of the autonomous zone. And then that in itself is like them placemaking and having a, a spot for them. Um, but the poetic triad, it says that those three things, out of those three things emerges the demands, right? Because one of the demands from the Seattle Chaz Chop was that um, this, that Seattle would develop a new system that would respond to, to moments of distress and not the police. And while that conversation, right, of like people abolishing the police, reforming the police has been a constant conversation for a long time, they were able to refine the demand by the practices that they were doing inside of the protest camp. And that wouldn't have happened if people weren't dreaming and if people weren't talking and if people weren't in there to begin with. Um, so that's like, I think that's like one of the big key takeaways from that, from all of this is how these three things, if you look at a protest camp alone, and you just see people there and you think they're just hanging out or they're just upset, you know, you're, we miss the smaller nuances of what's happening and how they're practicing, how the everyday practices inside of it um, can emerge a new way of living. Um, but also another key takeaway is that, um, as I touched on with like the experience in graduate school, I was at that point so burned out that the thesis, it is, it is finished, it was finished enough to graduate. <laughs> but um, as 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 a concept, it is nowhere near fleshed out. And I, I think it would take like a, it is the bare bones of like, Maybe a PhD. I'm not sure about that, but it is bare bones for a PhD um, if I decide to do that. Um, but I think those are that. That's like the big key takeaway. And that, um, and one last takeaway is that when we think about the three protest camps in particular, Seattle, Minneapolis, and Richmond, um, the extent of which they were able to practice freedom inside of these spaces. I saw when I analyzed the demands into three different groups of creation, removal, and change, those, the camp that was able to dream the biggest, their demands rested on creating new things. And while, you know, the middle dreaming as and, and the in-between was focused on removal, whereas those who dreamed the less were fo was focused on change. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, the Richmond's autonomous zone was much smaller than Seattle's autonomous zone. Um, but I think it, it shows that when we when we dream bigger in a group, you know, we're not thinking of how we change something. We're, we're thinking about how do we just create something. That was so eloquent and just so <laughs> amazing. I'm like, it's so obvious how like passionate. I know we've said this like eight times already, but like just how <laughs> like passionate you are about this and how how much of an impact that something like this has like can have. I just mm -hmm. think that it's, it's, it's really incredible. Um, one, I just want to say the plunger story. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, I yeah. talk a okay. lot. I talk a lot with one of my friends um, lives in LA, doesn't have a car. And so she bikes a lot. And we talk about, we, we have a lot of conversations about the safest ways to have bike infrastructure. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's, 
high visibility bike lanes that you're painting like a green color. There's just stripes, there's bollards, there's parking, and there's so many options. But I just think that the ingenuity to say, oh, like what is literally the same thing as a bollard, but mm-hmm. cheap and not like yeah. necessarily like <laughs> doesn't take like the manpower to puts concrete in the ground like oh a plunger like that is just so hilarious and so amazing that someone I mean okay not amazing because like the city should be doing its job and like keeping people right. safe but just like right. like I don't know just the 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 I don't it's even know so words. cool I love it I love yeah. it it's like the coolest thing yeah um and I I I would love I think if I know that, you know, we've we've talked a lot about some of these key takeaways. I think it might be helpful just to kind of like reiterate, I think, like the main like research question that you were trying to like get out or if you didn't have like a research question, just kind of like the overarching like kind of. um, I don't know, I feel like we kind of skipped like the context of the the paper. So it do mm-hmm. you like would you feel comfortable like giving a sort of high level introduction, I guess, as to like, it seems a little bit backwards, but like now that you've kind of had these, you know, amazing key takeaways, kind of what was like the big idea, I guess. And I know that this has been alluded to throughout, but I think that could be helpful just to provide a little bit more context. Yeah. So um, my, uh, so I had two essential research questions. Uh, my first one was, uh, in what ways do the demands made by protest camps reflect the wants of the population that have been ignored by the city, especially as it relates to urban planning? Um, and then my second question was, how does the space and place inside of a protest camp exist as its own form of urbanism, surrealism, and thought? Um, and so those are my two like really big conversations but as I like was writing this and I and I focused this on protest camps I kept thinking like you know I don't think it 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 stops at a protest camp you're right it doesn't have to be as as big as a protest camp um you know when we think about like how the city has these pillars um you know transportation housing the job economy uh, these these pillars that they tout as like you know what is what makes a city functioning. Uh, and when it fails, um, this impacts people, right? And so, example, you know, you, you, you the bus is late, so you miss um, a job interview, right? You know, and, and so now this puts you behind on rent. You know, many Americans are just one paycheck away from being homeless, right? And so now you're housing insecure. Um, maybe you're sleeping in your car, you know, maybe so, maybe now, the kids are going to school and CPS is called, right? So this, you know, we think about like, for a lot of people, a late bus, like for me, at where I am now, you know, a late bus is like, all right, I can just walk to work. I have that, I have that privilege and that luxury. But for so many people, it can be the beginning of a, of a domino effect for so many bad things. And, and how we respond to that, right? It's like, we think about in New York, uh, when some subway systems were down, they the, the dollar bus, the Chinese bus, as we call it, you know, would drive around in these areas and pick people up and drop them off at locations where there were no buses. Um, there was a video of, uh, it was actually when I was like in the midst of this, there was someone on Twitter who tweeted, Has, is there anyone exploring like 
the way like grief inspires urbanism. There was a video of protesters, bikers, protesters who were walking back and forth against a crosswalk like every 20 or 30 or 40 seconds um, because someone was struck and, and killed, uh, murdered by the by the driver, by a driver. And I was like, yeah, like that, like I'm writing about protest camps because like these are like these are big and like it's happening right now. But like um, me now is like grief urbanism extends to just how the everyday person or the everyday group like makes a response to something that cities should be doing. Yeah, I think that was really wonderfully summed up. And I think something that Natalie and I have talked about at nauseum probably at this point um, is just like the interconnectedness of of everything that you know, we talk about in planning, like you said, like one late bus for someone, you know, could could lead to this whole whole yeah. now. And so I, I appreciate you like putting it into this kind of scenario perspective that's really easy to understand of like, yes, you know, housing insecurity and transit issues and active transportation options and, you know, making the city accessible to people regardless of if they have a car, if they are able to walk, if they are not, like, it's just so important and something that we really mm. need to keep in mind. Um, but um, you state in your thesis a quote, this quote, making mm. a home out of a city that never wanted you to have such a thing, end quote. Um so we would love to hear a little bit about your hopes for the future as it relates to planning and grief urbanism. And I think it's always good to end on a positive note of what, why we should remain optimistic and why we should remain hopeful. And I think, you know, grief urbanism coming out of how a city might be failing its, its constituents, mm -hmm. its residents, like what is there like certain things that, you know, gives you hope and keeps you optimistic about the future of of planning and yeah yeah um that was actually like a, that's a really good quote and I'm, I was like oh that's, that's such a good quote that's a really good <laughs> I had to like double back and make sure I wrote that it wasn't like someone else <laughs> did I cite somebody else who said that um, but, <laughs> um I, so my hopes for urban planning is that um, one is that, you know, we we follow, I don't like like using like buzzwords like new urbanists, but like we we do follow people like Jonathan Bell, JP, you know, this idea of embedded planning and getting into the community and having those conversations. Uh, I, I have a friend who is doing their graduate degree in like immersive literature, technology, something. I'm not really sure, actually. But the cool thing is that she was working on this thing where she was going around and interviewing everyday people and making these like small biographies. She has so many in her, her, her room. And, you know, and, and the stories that, that we would sit and read, it's just like, there's, there's no one right answer to how a city should run, but there is an answer that best supports those most marginalized. Um, and we will we will never know that if we don't just go out and start talking to people. Um, so yeah, and so my hope is that you know we keep this fight alive and and we be optimistic. Um, I jumped on a Zoom call once with like a bunch of planners, 
Um, and I said something, I don't know what I said. I said something and someone who's way more senior was just like, oh, you must be super new. You're not jaded yet. And I just feel like one hot take. I know that like at as in the profession now, there are a lot of people in my building alone that, oh, I actually shouldn't say this, but uh, but hot take, I, I feel like I understand that job security is important, but when you take a job as such as that's so impactful as this and you're in there for 10, 20 years and you don't have that fire anymore, you're just doing it to collect a check, you do your you do a massive disservice to people who really are being impacted by the failures of the city, um, and so I, my hope is that as more people graduate with a planning degree and come into the profession, um, we keep this like optimism and this fire alive as long as we can, um, and we don't become jaded, uh, and we just keep fighting for the underdog. Um, and as it relates to grief, urbanism. I mean, I would like to like write it better. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I've been like wrestling around with like writing this essay, um, exploring it more and taking it out of like the context of protest camps into the everyday life. Um, but I just like, I'm just like so exhausted from it. I'm just like trying to, you know, like push it away for a while. Um, yeah. So that's really, yeah, I think that, I think, my hope is that for the future is that planners uh, keep the fire alive and, and, and we don't become jaded or, or complacent. I absolutely just love that you touched upon that because it's really frustrating that that's such a common um, kind of like statement that's made in the planning field. I've heard this before, mm -hmm. like, you know, you kind of, you're, you're new and you're excited. And, and then you hear this like, oh, well, don't worry. That's not going to last long or, oh, you know, just wait until it, until it really gets rough. And it's like, yeah, or, 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 oh, you're just in, you're just in grad school. It's different. Exactly. exactly. Like <laughs> I just, it, for me, it's, it should never get to a point where, I mean, of course, like you can be frustrated and you can be disappointed with the system. That doesn't mean that you say, okay, well, because, you know, everything is just doom and gloom. Now I'm done and I don't want to participate anymore. It should be, okay, this is doom and gloom and how are we going to fix it? Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's something that I really appreciate that you've echoed a lot when we've been uh, talking with you today. I, I'm just so grateful to hear that because like you said, it is about keeping the fire alive and people are going to have days and you're going to have moments where it doesn't feel like, you know, you want to keep going. And trust me, me and Sam have, we've felt that even in grad school alone. Yeah. So, um, but I think the the biggest part is that there's such a need and there's so many problems that are happening in this space. And we do need to start kind of reimagining the way that we address these challenges. And so I think it is really important to kind of remind yourself that, you know, you don't give up when it gets difficult. You you really do. It's about pushing forward. And I, I think that's a really important statement. And I'm also optimistic that, you know, uh, younger folks who are in the field of planning are going to be the ones that are doing that. And I, I'm hopeful for that. Um, and, you know, Sam, I don't know if you have anything that you want to add. Yeah. I was just going to say, I feel like there's so many parallels between obviously like everything is interconnected, but there's so many parallels between like climate kind of like doom feelings mm -hmm. of like, yeah, uh, like, 
I don't want to be the person that's so jaded. That's like, well, what can I as an individual even do for this yeah. like huge existential problem and crisis mm-hmm. that I feel like we're facing? But I think it is like so important that, you know, people like individuals, even though it might not feel like, you know, you're having this huge impact, like by having these habits or having these behaviors and attitudes toward things like you are then influencing other people to kind of view it like view the world differently or like take on new habits and so I feel like there's a lot of parallels with like how we stay optimistic in like all these different spaces and just drawing on on that so um that could be something else interesting to explore although I feel like you have your plate full of things that you probably are interested in looking at further. Yeah. Um, and I, I just want to say, I, I love that you asked about like hope um, because um, if, like as when I was writing my thesis, there were, I mean, there were nights where I was just, you know, I was, I'm writing about death. I'm writing about like failures and, and I'm like, but I'm also like, I have to remind myself that like, I'm also writing about like the hope that people have. And the like the courage to like to, to take over a space, liberate a space, and really dream of something means you still have hope. Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I think that we could go either one of two ways, as as just as a person, regardless, right? It's we either become like pessimistic and jaded, or we remain hopeful and like imaginative. And um, I, I thought I'm so glad you asked that because I I wanted like it's important that people understand that like. It's a heavy, it's a heavy thesis, it's a heavy topic, but it is essentially about hope. And, and that's why I did not like want to use like words that denoted like anger or like, mm-hmm. you know, despair. I, I felt like grief was a really good way of saying like, you are like sad about something, but you're going to work toward, you know, like the, you're working toward getting out of this. Um, so thank you for that. I, I, I love that. Yeah, the credits all Natalie's. She was the mastermind behind <laughs> behind the questions. <laughs> Honestly, a lot of it just drew from reading your thesis, and so again, Rai, we just want to thank you so much. Really, not only for the work that you're doing and for the thesis that you wrote, and hopefully that you know the work that's going to come from it as you as you continue to explore this concept. But we just want to thank you for being here with us today, sharing this with our listeners, who I know are going to be very intrigued about this stuff. And we always like at the end of the episode to give you the opportunity that that if you have any organizations that you would like to share with our listeners or anything that you want to plug that you think could be beneficial in terms of information or activism or anything like that, we would really invite that opportunity right now before we say our goodbyes. Yeah, thank you guys so much. Uh, I would uh, I'd like to plug Habitat for Humanity. I love volunteering with them. Uh, I say get out there and like if you if you're able to get out there and like help build a house, uh, it's nothing better than like just being there for a good cause. I do a lot of vol- volunteer work, um, and then I have to, I don't have like any like organizations to shout out because I think that you should really be like hyper local in your like activism. So I just say like whatever find an organization that aligns with your beliefs and really like dedicate an hour to a month or a week to them and just like. Uh, help better help have immediate impacts on people's lives if if you can yeah I think that's a common theme that 
has come up when when we're inviting that question or if we're inviting people to talk about organizations, it's it's often, you know, look into what is immediately in your communities or communities mm-hmm. that you're working within, which I think can be even more kind of not more helpful. I think, you know, giving your service to any organization like is good, but or not, you know, if you're if you're working in a community that's different than what you're where you're living, it can be really yeah. amazing to kind of explore that community further in a really like meaningful way where you're trying to engage with that community more, understand where they're coming from, under like meet a lot of people in that community so that your planning work can be, you know, as Jonathan says, we can't plan from our desks. We have to get mm-hmm. out yeah. into that space and really get to know it and appreciate and understand the nuances. So um yeah. 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 Yep. Being in your, also, I think to just like really making sure that you're working within your own community, the one in which you live, I think you have the greatest impact because you Mm -hmm. also have the lived experience of being there. You know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people, you understand the organization, the roots and what they're advocating for. And so I think that's so important. So thank you again for highlighting that. And again, just really thank you so much for sitting down with us talking kind of going over everything that you've been working on. And we wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing. Can't wait to hear more. And we're hoping that, you know, if you continue writing on on grief urbanism and you you continue uh, expanding on your thesis, we can have you back and, and get some of your new insights moving forward. Oh, gosh, that'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> a little a little motivation to keep you going. Yeah, a little motivation. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Urban Planning is Not Boring. If you did, please remember to send us to your friends and follow us uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, guys, urban planning is not boring. No, it is not.